Sorry, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's event. I'm uh, George Gaskell. I'm the Pro Director here at the Dunn School of Economics. It's a really great uh, honor and privilege for me to welcome His Excellency, Prime Minister of Malta, Joseph Muscat, here today. Dr. Muscat successfully contested the first European Parliament elections in Malta in June 2004. He was elected Prime Minister, uh, leader of the Labour Party in 2008 and took office as Prime Minister of Malta last, uh, in, on the 11th of March in 2013. Now, in this evening's speech, Dr. Muscat will consider the future of the Commonwealth, how it can be ensured to be effective, prosperous, and a relevant organization which meets the needs of its citizens. I'm also very pleased to welcome the right on Hugo Swire, Member of Parliament for East Devon and Minister of State at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Now, a few housekeeping matters. For those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag today is hash LSE Commonwealth. I see it's up there. And if you would care to put your phone on silent, that, or even switch it off, that would be much appreciated. The event is being recorded, and it will be available as a podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks. So after the lecture, as usual, there will be a chance for the audience to put questions to the Prime Minister. But for the moment, will you please join me in welcoming Hugo Swire, who will introduce Joseph Muscat to deliver his lecture, The Commonwealth at 65, from London to Valletta. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Gaskell. It's a great pleasure to welcome to London His Excellency Dr. Joseph Muscat, the Prime Minister uh, of Malta. Prime Minister, you're in good company here tonight. I gather there are a number of students uh, from Malta currently studying at the London School of Economics and an astonishing 19 heads of state from Commonwealth countries have studied here. I'm also pleased we can continue our dialogue uh, so soon after my visit to Valletta in May. My visit coincided with the arrival of the traditional curtain raiser to the Commonwealth Games, the Queen's Baton Relay, as it toured every participating Commonwealth country and territory. It was wonderful for me to see some of Malta's, Malta's 27 athletes going to Glasgow and to see the enthusiasm of the Maltese people for the relay and the Games. I also experienced firsthand the many close ties between our two countries, both from our shared history, but also looking uh, to a bright future. We will celebrate those links again when Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge visits Malta in September to mark the 50th anniversary of Malta's independence, her first solo overseas visit. I'm also pleased that President Emeritus 
Dr. Ugo Mifsud Bonace, will represent Malta at the commemoration of the centenary of World War I at Glasgow Cathedral uh, in August. 1.7 million men and women of the Commonwealth forces died in both world wars. During my visit in May, I made a moving visit to a Commonwealth war grave cemetery at Pieta. Malta's courage, not least during World War II, for which the island was, of course, awarded the George Cross, will never be forgotten. Our shared sacrifices as members of the Commonwealth remain hugely significant today. The Commonwealth can be proud of its role in shaping and protecting the principles of the free world. And it can take inspiration from the strength and longevity of Malta's numerous uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites as we work to ensure the Commonwealth's foundations remain just as enduring and solid. So tonight, Prime Minister, I look forward to hearing your views on the future of the Commonwealth and how we can ensure its enduring relevance. The United Kingdom certainly values it greatly, and we want to see it flourish, which is why the British Government has brought the Commonwealth back to the heart of our foreign policy. But we cannot be complacent. As circumstances change, so must the Commonwealth. For example, a common language, legal system and democratic values are a powerful driver of trade, jobs and prosperity. The Commonwealth's GDP is forecast to grow from 5.7 to 8 trillion pounds in the next four years. But given the Commonwealth's vast potential, we can do better. We must also promote the values of the Commonwealth Charter, democracy, human rights and the rule of law. On diversity alone, the UK will continue to make the case for both acceptance and integration of the LGBT community. But now we have the Charter, we need a plan of action to put its values into practice. When the Commonwealth Heads of Government meet in Malta next year, we will have an opportunity to do that. I commend the Prime Minister for volunteering Valletta as host. I can think of no more attractive backdrop for the meeting. Next year's meeting also comes at a time when we start working towards a new set of international development goals. The Commonwealth can make a significant contribution, and in fact the organisation's relevance in the future depends in part on fulfilling the Commonwealth Charter's commitment to helping the poorest and most vulnerable. We must find ways to support both sustainable development and good governance. I will end my remarks tonight with a quick mention of the other reason why we're here, the Glasgow Games. To run through some figures, it's 11 days, 17 sports, 17 nations, 6,500 athletes and millions of supporters holding their breath around the world. We're also using the Games to develop business ties between all Commonwealth countries through the Commonwealth Games Business Conference, which I will be visiting this week, as will Prime Minister Muscat. The 2012 Games saw £11 billion in trade and investment deals generated in just over a year, three years ahead of target. 
I hope the Commonwealth Games will have the same effect on boosting trade for Glasgow, the rest of the UK and indeed the Commonwealth. They will show Glasgow at its best. It will be a spectacular event and I wish the Maltese athletes every success. But now, without further ado, let me introduce Prime Minister Muscat, who will cast a critical eye over the Commonwealth and its future. Thank you. Thank you, Hugo. Professor Gaskell. In many countries, reaching 65 years of age equates to retirement. When crossing this eminent threshold of time, should the Commonwealth, a transnational institution which predates the United Nations, call it a day and withdraw from the international scene? I will today share some thoughts on how I see the Commonwealth and what are some of the options to keep it relevant in the future. In doing so, I will try to avoid being pedantic or indeed diplomatic in my approach. Instead, I will approach the subject with the attitude of a 40-year-old European representing a small country celebrating its 50 year of independence this year and a proud member of the Commonwealth. To me, an independent and republican ethos of my nation was never an issue to be questioned. I always considered this a natural state of affairs. We consider not being an independent nation or not having a republican constitution as unthinkable as, well, England winning the World Cup, for example. <laughs> like many people from my generation, I cannot contemplate the idea of being a colony or of having a foreigner as a head of state. Thus, the sentimental relevance of the Commonwealth is steadily decreasing in the minds of my compatriots, as it is, I believe, in the minds of many young people across the countries that make up this organization. Indeed, I struggle to imagine such sentimentalism growing stronger among people who are 25 years or younger, who today make up for 50% of the Commonwealth population. Nevertheless, the aspiration that our society should be both open to external influences and play a part in a wider international context comes equally natural to us. All these elements, albeit seemingly contradictory, are partially the result of my country's history, an essential part of which is intrinsically interwoven with the Commonwealth and what brought it about. I will not bore you with the list of initiatives that the Commonwealth and its structures have developed over the years. Instead, I will try to tackle some deficiencies and suggest changes that could be considered to make this organization more relevant in the years to come. Even though there have been recent appeals by friends of the Commonwealth, the likes of the Right Honorable Frank Field, not to debate the organization as, quote, as if standing around the bed of a mortally ill friend, unquote, we have to admit 
that there are all the symptoms of division and dysfunction in an organization that depends on unity and cooperation. While we should not, in my opinion, prepare the funeral rites, we need to admit that the patient is sick before going on to make a diagnosis and prescribe potential solutions. I believe that in the mind of many, the Commonwealth is seen as a vehicle of each and every member's relations, many times of a roller coaster type, with the United Kingdom. Can it be otherwise? I had my first opportunity to assess the formal Commonwealth institutions last year when I attended the Heads of Government meeting in Colombo. To be frank, I was expecting many things that did not materialize. One of these expectations was a condescending approach by whoever and whatever represented the British establishment. I am glad to say I was wrong. United Kingdom representatives before, during, and after Colombo went to great lengths to make it clear that they do not see the Commonwealth as their thing. They are aware of the history, but keener on developing the future than reminiscing about the past. I was positively surprised by what I believe is a genuine willingness to play an active but at the same time rather egalitarian role within the organization. On the other hand, I noted a multitude of attitudes by components of what I would term as the rest of the world. Smaller countries look at the Commonwealth as a means to foster the relationship with the United Kingdom and some other global players. I will not provide a complete list so as not to risk exclusions, and since it is pretty obvious who the global mammoths are. Smaller and peripheral countries see these meetings as rather exceptional occasions where they can rub shoulders with important international players and have their ear in discussions crucial to their own economic development. It is legitimate to say that in some quarters there is much more interest in fostering bilateral relations with a handful of countries rather than engaging in a genuine multilateral discourse which would produce a healthy debate on global issues which such a genuinely transcontinental organization is ideally poised to host. And yes, there is recrimination, spoken and unspoken. It was very interesting for me to discover that during the so-called heads of government retreat, yes, they call it retreat actually, there is free seating. I, for one, found this arrangement a fascinating exercise in geopolitics and the politics of development, one that uncovered so many truths. I will not break confidentiality, but I must say that observing prime ministers standing, thinking, sitting, looking at each other, standing again, and then sitting in another place was a veritable snapshot of the north-south 
developed, underdeveloped, center-periphery, big-small countries debate. It also left people like myself coming from a small, developed European country in close proximity of the African continent, second-guessing where to sit, actually. So my first point is let us do less finger-pointing and tone down the blame game. It is time, and it is politically correct to debate Britain's role in the Commonwealth. It would be acknowledging the elephant in the room, and I believe it would come as a huge relief to everyone, including the United Kingdom. Indeed, a nation that is ready to debate the succession of an integral part of it and its own relationship with its immediate neighbors would probably have no qualms in debating itself and its relationship with those countries who are mostly its former subjects. It would be like a former wife and husband sitting down and having a decent conversation with no strings attached, talking about the good and the bad times and seeing how to make better the things that they still have in common. This would offer many countries the opportunity to clear the air and hopefully get a break from the blame game. The United Kingdom is a source of many good and other not-so-good developments in our countries. I, for one, have no qualms in saying that, on balance, Britain's 100-year to 100-year direct influence on Malta was essentially positive. If anything, it left us with an impeccable Anglo-Saxon work ethic, which we can couple with our Mediterranean lifestyle and food. And we thank God that it's not the other way around. <laughs> Since I would not imagine myself living in a country with Mediterranean work practices and English food. <laughs> 50 years ago, our people decided it was time to move on. The decision could not have come one day sooner and eventually led to a Republican constitution 10 years later, the closing down of British military bases, and membership of the European Union a decade ago. These events are fundamentally tied to one another. Some of our strengths we owe partially to those two centuries of our history, as indeed we do some of our weaknesses. Nevertheless, we are here today because we are who we are and because of the decisions we have taken. My point is that while the United Kingdom cannot claim the sole paternity for success stories in the Commonwealth, other countries cannot keep thinking that Britain is uniquely responsible for problems that, many times now, are of their own making. On a more practical level, in order to encourage a more fruitful multilateral approach at Commonwealth events, governments should, even with the Commonwealth Secretary's sustained support, spend more time fostering bilateral relations during the two-year period between one heads of government meeting and the other, and not schedule such meetings most exclusively during these summits. Furthermore, it would do the institution a, good, a great deal of good if heads of government took the time to meet informally at the margins of the annual United Nations General Assembly. 
it would help create that sense of missing camaraderie that could really make the difference at the end of the day. The Commonwealth commands 30% of votes at the United Nations, but almost always fails to put forward common candidates and adopt significant common stance. Such meetings would foster these possibilities. Turning now to the wider picture, I would like to put forward some comparisons. Malt also forms part of a gathering which is much smaller than the Commonwealth, but to which we and all other member states dedicate paramount importance, the European Union. Why is that? Why is it that we devote so much time and resources to an organization which is less than half the size, with limited geographical coverage, and with potential economic growth that is currently nowhere near that of the Commonwealth. One important factor is geographical proximity. But stopping there would provide us with a very shallow explanation. I would instead submit that central to the enhanced value of the European Union are its shared values, common roots, and their direct economic benefits. Countries do not become members because of their history, but because they show commitment and resilience in achieving the convergence which would see them qualify for the benefits of freedom of movement of goods, services, capital, and people. Adjustment and restructuring are painful and come at a cost which is not only economic, but also social and political. It takes years and is not completed upon membership. Instead, the process is ongoing. There are countries that are geographically and historically European, but until now do not qualify to become members because they do not have the democratic and the political commitment to deliver the necessary reforms. Part of these reforms have to do with sharing or even ceding responsibilities to supranational organizations and institutions. That takes a lot of courage, and sometimes something more than that. This is supplemented by the fact that the various institutions have the power to decide. Decisions are not statements of intent, but rather actions that affect everyday life from Copenhagen to Valletta, from Lisbon to Warsaw. It is this high level of commitment that puts in the mind of my people the European Union on a much higher level of importance than the Commonwealth or even the United Nations. On the other hand, for most member countries, Membership of the Commonwealth is a historic fact. Like your parents, you don't get to choose them. Most countries did not actively choose to become members of the Commonwealth. Instead, membership was seen as an almost diplomatic obligation. On the other hand, joining the European Union equates to marriage. It is a choice about your future and not a statement about your past. At this point, one might ask whether I am proposing a European Union-like structure for the Commonwealth. I must put the minds of my British friends at rest by clearly stating, no, God forbid. 
What I am proposing is that the Commonwealth should be about commitment rather than about history. I, I, I must say I love this, Steve. It should be about commitment rather than history. It should be about the future rather than the past. To do this, in my mind, there are three obvious models which one could adopt. The first is disbanding the Commonwealth as it is today and regrouping, setting out updated guidelines and charter of values to which participants must strictly abide. Whether or not one opts for such a model, the idea of further opening up the Commonwealth membership to other countries near and far, and also allowing for consensual withdrawals from the organization without acrimony, should be duly examined. The second is that of a multi-speed Commonwealth. The Commonwealth today is a broad church it groups countries, most of which would never dream of meeting each other had it not been for a common denominator in their history. Furthermore, the, outlooks, the outlook of some of these countries is simply contradictory with that of others. So, one might argue that for this organization to remain relevant for the future, it is, is to have the present Commonwealth as the foundation for a much integrated subgroup. Members of this new Commonwealth could decide to adhere to strict rules, from democracy to gender equality, from religious freedom to minority rights, including LGBTI issues, from transparency to environmental sustainability. These rules should be much more stringent than the current charter, with membership coming only after close scrutiny and screening being an ongoing process. A third model emerges from the critique of the second, which can be seen as the formalization of the ingrained differences between different groups of countries and the creation of even more divisions. One might argue that rather than setting the bar too high for many to achieve at once, one could opt for an improved Commonwealth which would engage in more regular and dynamic exercise by means of which each and every country is offered more political and technical assistance. These program, programs would be specifically intended to nudge towards better governance and more open societies, fostering convergence rather than divergence. There might obviously be other models that could serve as a basis for change. What is for sure, and this is my final thought, is that change does not happen by itself or by accident. We need to work for change. Staring at a decaying organization and hoping against hope that its fortunes might suddenly turn around is delusional. So my take is that the Commonwealth should not retire, but should decide what it wants to be. It can opt to remain as it is and sink in total irrelevance within the next decade or so, or have the courage to make changes by starting to tackle them at least in piecemeal fashion. Having our history as a sole bond 
is clearly not enough in today's world. In order to be relevant, the Commonwealth should be about people rather than diplomats. It should be about economic growth rather than bureaucracy. It should be about the future rather than the past. This is the food for thought I put forward. It might be somewhat different from what is usually expected from politicians, and I apologize, Professor, for that, but I do hope it serves its purpose. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dr. Muscat. That's a, a provocative analysis. An organization looking for something to do other than running cocktail parties and <laughs> deciding who to stand beside. Uh, let's open the floor to questions. I suggest we take three questions at a time. We have roving microphones. And if you'd like to say who you are and briefly what is your background, not your background, but your affiliation, and if I may press you to ask questions rather than to deliver a lecture, uh, they'll be much appreciated. So uh, is there a question from this side of the uh, uh, audience to start off? We have a question there. Thank you very much, sir. Hello there. Uh, the name is Ranjiv Gunawardner, uh, a private subject here, I'm not associated with any government organization. My observation is that... Uh, is there a possibility the Commonwealth could be of some relevance in terms of, you mentioned bringing it forward, but the decision-making process should be much easier. How is it structured at the moment in terms of passing new legislation, not, not legislation, but new ideas and concepts, and how does it actually trickle down where things are actually implemented? Thank you very much. Question? Other question? The lady in black over here. Hi, Prime Minister. Um, my name is Melanie De Bono, and I am an LSE alumni here from Malta, um, currently an economist here in London. My question to you is, um, basically, you were right to say that the Commonwealth gives us so much opportunities in terms of trade, given emerging economies' potential for the future. Um, so I see your confusion there with why people associate the EU as such a bigger power in our country. My question to you is, do you think that the Commonwealth can be more influential in terms of political problems, such as, for example, the problems we have in Malta with immigration, given that they're coming from basically some of these countries or even their neighbor countries? And do you think that that could be a problem elsewhere when they see the Commonwealth growing as such a bigger potential than it actually is at the moment? Thank you. Prime Minister, would you like to take place too? Okay. So I think these are two interesting questions. First, Ranjit, um, I think that the situation, at least from what I read and from what I have experienced, um, to be honest, when I was in Colombo, I never experienced such a great deal of energy going wasted in two days. So you, you've got these 50-plus ministers or, or, or delegates quarreling on a communique that, at the end of the day, nobody reads, and I might say nobody cares about. But 
huge resources were wasted in having this thing put together. And it works basically, okay, I'll put this paragraph to satisfy the Caribbean people, I have this paragraph to satisfy the Africans, I have this paragraph to satisfy the Europeans, I have this paragraph to bash this, and then we, we bash that. If you actually get the time to read it, and it might be even worse than Friday the 13th, the, the whole series uh, package, uh, um, seeing it at, one, at once, you can note a total contradiction in terms between one paragraph and the other. So my point, and part of the reform we'll be putting forward is, let's not waste time on all that, and let's do something more fruitful. Let's discuss ideas. Even if we don't agree, and it's, I sit around the table with 27 other prime ministers in Europe, and we find it very difficult to agree. So it's no, it's no issue, no news that we don't agree between 50-plus members. It's, it's normal. But let's devote our energy to discuss. And I think one of the good ideas would be to be less about statements and more about campaigns. Let's pick on campaigns against poverty, against slave labor, against child labor, that even though maybe not all countries are in a position today to implement, but maybe we can get all the member states to, by a certain date, adopt legislation in their parliaments, um, which would make some sort of difference at the end of the day. So I think it's, it, it should be really a matter of where to devote our resources. And I would say less in diplomatic fare and more in campaigning, more on visibility on crucial issues, especially in developing countries. And that is, I believe, a huge obligation that most of the members have towards other members of the Commonwealth. What Melanie was saying ties perfect, perfectly in what, in what um, Ranchit just, just asked. Yes, so we are, we are a country, as you well know, where we bear the brunt together with Italy of continuous migration flows, illegal migration flows, so basically both people crossing desperate people crossing each and every day. So just before entering here, I get a phone call from um, our army chief telling me, look, we have another 500 people stranded at sea just right now. It's happening right now. Yesterday, I was told and I saw with my eyes pictures of 30 or so people just dead and part of a very small ship because they didn't make it. They, they, they were victims to a stampede. And can you imagine someone telling you, look, there are, there are a great deal of dead people, but we can actu cannot actually count them because everyone is just like crammed on each other. Just imagine the sort of death that, that is. My point is that th this is a European issue. And one of the vehicles which could serve to at least try to tackle it in the medium term, could be the Commonwealth. And that is also one of the things we are trying to put forward. What we want to do is, once again, less of diplomatic fare, but I would be more interested in having more programs in place, more especially educational programs in place, 
and not necessarily at tertiary level, but more at secondary level, more at schools level, and more financing of, of such educational initiatives. Okay, we have a couple of questions from the balcony. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Um, it's interesting to hear you compare the European Union and the Commonwealth with each other and its relative merits and values to people in Malta. Here in Britain, of course, that debate is also ongoing, and you see some members of the Conservative Party, but also some ministers, saying very clearly that they would like to leave the European Union or reform the European Union so that they can focus more on the Commonwealth. Um, and that way re-establish Britain's position in the world and use it as a vehicle for bringing back the economy and growing uh, our way out of the crisis. How do you feel about that? And we have another question at the far end of the balcony. Thank you very much. Thanks for a fantastic uh, presentation. Um, I, uh, it's Gareth Wall. I'm from the Commonwealth Local Government Forum, uh, but this is a, in personal capacity. Uh, you, you talked about um, how resources are used. I was just wondering if you could expand a bit more about how um, you feel moving forward the financing of the Commonwealth might move forward. Uh, obviously, we've had issues with the second largest um, donor, the Canada, withdrawing for the next two years uh, for political reasons, and uh, with the largest donor as, as the UK for its technical programs, um, with the revision and that you suggest in terms of Britain's role in the Commonwealth, do you see that reflecting in the financing of the Commonwealth? Thank you. Is there a third question from the balcony? Gentlemen, there. <laughs> Hello, I'm David Porter. I'm a uh, school teacher. I was very interested in what you said about school-based programmes as a way of developing the Commonwealth. Could you say a bit more about that? Thank you very much. Okay. So... On the issue of the financing of the organization, I think that the problem is um, political at the end of the day. And um, I think it came about because of the lack of clarity and the lack of um, willingness to speak out the truth. That's why I think we should come, we're coming to an age where we can all sit together and be pretty frank about what the issues are. Um, and I think at the end of the day, financing would be the least of problems. Um, I think that the problem with financing came because of the political issues, and that's why I suggested a change in the way we address these political issues. When it comes to what David was asking, I think that most of the Commonwealth programs, not all of them, but most of them, um, our educational programs are aimed at uh, tertiary students. So trying to entice them or giving them the, the, the scholarships to come to study to the UK or, or other places. I think that's fine. But I think that's basically targeting people who already have a lot of potential. I believe in the way in which to address development uh, in the right way is to go to kids who are 10 or 12 years of age, who maybe are going to school or maybe not, and to devote more resources rather than to the political networking, which I think we can do less with, um, uh, 
but to spend more resources on such programs. If you ask me for a model, I think the Erasmus program over here in Europe could, could serve as a, as a great model for a Commonwealth-based approach. I know there are some, some uh, programs already in place, such as the Commonwealth of Learning, but I think more can be done over there. Now to the difficult question um, on, on Britain's role in, in the EU. I believe that the issue is not... Britain or not Britain. Britain is an essential part of the European Union, and I believe that each and every one of us other countries want Britain to stay in the European Union. But we understand that there are issues. And the issues, I don't think it should be whether Britain is right or not, but it's an issue of where decisions are best taken. And I, for once, see an argument, a solid argument, in saying that some decisions that are today taken at European level would be or would yield better results if they're taken at national level. On the other hand, maybe there are other issues which today um, are not subject to coordination between the 28 member states, which should be devolved to um, a more federal approach. So, in balance, I do welcome the possibility of actually opening that can of worms because it is something that each and every leader complains about. And there is this occasion, this opportunity, where because of other reasons, the situation in the UK will lead... I don't think that it will be the UK against the rest of the world. And I think that each and every member state would put forward its own ideas on how a new European Union should look, about, should, should look like. Um, this idea of a multi-tier or multi-speed Europe, whether it's acceptable or not, whether it's a de facto um, reality or, or, or otherwise. So I think we have interesting years ahead. Um, if there is a referendum in the UK, it will be held probably in 2017, as you well know. It will be also the six months when my country will be holding the presidency of the European Council. So it will be an interesting period for us to, to, to hear and debate. But I don't think we should be afraid about discussing these issues. Um, I would be more concerned if we don't debate these things. So that's my take. I thought was, you put it last. I thought there was going to be a diplomatic silence. On <laughs> that was uh, no, we have a gentleman over here. Please. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for, uh, for a very scintillating out-of-the-box uh, presentation on the Commonwealth. My name is Euripides. I'm also a member of the Commonwealth. I'm from Cyprus. I'm the High Commissioner for Cyprus. Uh, picking up on the question on the European Union, and given the fact there are three island countries in the, in, in the Commonwealth that are also members of the European Union, two small ones but one big one, uh, I'm wondering if, if you could share some thoughts if there can be any, any, shall I call it, cooperation, any institutional cooperation between Commonwealth and the European Union. Any thoughts how these things can somehow 
come together in a more closer, sustained way. I'm, 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 I don't have clear thoughts about it, but, but obviously I'm sure you, you might have and you care to, care to share. Thank you. And we have a, in about the fourth row. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Uh, thank you for uh, giving this lecture. Uh, Malta is one of the few destinations in Europe I've never had the privilege and pleasure to visit. Putting that aside, we meet here on the, on the 40th anniversary of the continued occupation of Cyprus. And uh, a Commonwealth member, uh, yet no one dares to mention this very fact. Over six and a half thousand people were slaughtered in Cyprus. There are the people in uh, Diego Garcia have been displaced to make way for for, for an American base uh, in, in the West Indies. Uh, the so-called uh, Commonwealth. You, when you go to uh, to go to Belize or Jamaica, you will see the, you will see the, the so-called benefits of, of, of uh, the Commonwealth. What has the Commonwealth brought uh, to Malta, if you compare and contrast what the benefits have been and, and achievements of the Cuban people, uh, despite the s sanctions and against the people and, and, and uh, stuff. And may I please ask you, what, yeah, you. what you, that, how do you propose to answer the, uh, the plea by Dr. Swire of, on, on behalf of his daughter who died in, in the, in the uh, Lockerbie uh, air crash and are, you, are we going to one day Excuse hear the true facts and about, about the okay. Uh, okay. complicity well, of the Maltese people in indicting, indicting the uh, Libyans and having the regime change in Libya. Thank you very much. Thank you very much and there's a young man in the uh, right at the very back. Hello, I'm Harry Rusheth. I'm a sixth form student. Um, traditionally, the Commonwealth's had to focus on social and political issues. Do you think there's any chance of cooperation on economic issues in the future, for instance, free trade areas or even a Commonwealth Bank? Yeah. So we'll take those three questions. Thank you. Sure. I'll start with Harry. I think it's, it's the future, really. And we are actively working on that. One of the ideas that came out in the recent months and where we're working together with India and with a couple of other countries is to establish a small and medium enterprise financing facility um, which would help smaller enterprises around the Commonwealth to internationalize their products. Um, I think the idea of having a free trade area would be fantastic. Obviously, there are problems associated with the fact that some um, countries, such as mine and, and the UK, are members to another free trade area, which is Europe. So there are issues when it comes to the transposition of the two. Another fantastic idea, but which has major problems for us in from a legal point of view, but I think which can be implemented in quite a number of other Commonwealth countries is freedom of movement of people or visa-less regimes, where, um, especially when it comes to students and young people, 
could be encouraged to move from one country to another. Then again, uh, my country is a member of the Schengen Arrangement. We cannot do that unilaterally, and we would have to lobby all the other 28, 27 member states in order to, or at least the Schengen member states, to get that done. But that's the way to think ahead. So, yes, it's about politics, it's about social issues, but it should be about trade, it should be about economic growth. And when, in our midst, we have some of the global powers both the established and those being uh, establishing themselves and those that will become economic powers in the future, that's a no-brainer. And, and unfortunately, little work has been done. One idea could also be that a financial instrument could be put in place where there would be a quid pro quo, where access to that financial instrument would be only subject to changes in political attitudes of certain countries. So, you know, you get to do these reforms, which might be difficult for you. Reforms when it comes to gender equality, when it comes to child labor, when it comes to LGBTI issues, when it comes also to, the, to, other, to other issues. And if you actually ha show the commitment and have a plan to change things, you could have access to a financial instrument, with, instrument which would then help further develop that country. Obviously, it's, it's open to debate. It's a carrot-and-stick approach, which some might not agree with, but I think the future lies therein. When it comes to then the interface between the EU and the Commonwealth, um, the fact is that um, we are only three Commonwealth members um, in the European Union, so we might not be able to push uh, that agenda all too much. But I think that rather than there being possibilities with the Commonwealth within the European Union, I think there are more possibilities for the European Union within the Commonwealth, especially when it comes, for example, to the next COP meeting on climate in, in Paris. I think that we can, the European Union can use the Commonwealth network to try to influence the final result of that negotiation. On the gentleman's um, two points, basically, on Cyprus and Lockerbie, I am, for one, a very good friend of the Cypriot president, who was, as far as I know, the only mainstream politician in Cyprus to advocate a yes for the Annan plan in favor of reunification. Unfortunately, his, um, his push didn't come to fruition. I believe, as many Cypriots do, and I was reading a poll just today, um, um, that reunification will come not only during their lifetime, but it will come very soon. At least the, the information we're privy to is that that doesn't lie for, uh, far too off. What I know is that my country has been lucky that we have managed to close our bases peacefully and that our independence and freedom came without one single person being killed or shedding one single drop of blood. So I consider ourselves very lucky and a model on how to um, administer transition from colonial status to, to, to a free and independent um, state. On the Lockerbie issue, 
Yes, I've met Dr. Swire myself a number of times. I know the gentleman. I think he is genuine. And his theory is basically the theory that proves that Malta had nothing to do with, with the Lockerbie um, incident. And that's why we, we are open to what he is saying, and we have met him and will continue to meet him. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, sir. I'm taking questions from this side of the hall, if I may. Please. Is there anyone else on this side of the hall? I may have ignored you with this uh, lecture. Uh, thank you, Dr. Muscat, for. Thank you, Dr. Muscat, for a very interesting talk. Uh, I just wondered what the, in your new Commonwealth, what the role of the royal family might be. <laughs> mm. oh, that's, that's an issue. Question, gentleman in the whitish shirt. Uh, I'm Paul Wilson from the Sankey newspaper. Um, I just wanted to know what your opinions might be on Scottish independence, obviously, as a <laughs> sort as of, a saw that part of the Commonwealth. Um, that's all really. Great. Any other questions on this side where we've got the. Uh... Right, let's take the uh, gentleman with the red tie. Uh, hi, Lewis Brooks uh, from the Royal Commonwealth Society. Um, Given that LGBTI is something of a Commonwealth uh, problem, so to speak, um, a bit of an elephant in the room, how do you do? You have any ideas on how to create a dialogue which is kind of includes all members of the Commonwealth, but perhaps can move the issue forward in some way? On LGBTI issues. On LGBTI issues. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Let me start from the from the last question. I don't think it's easy, and I, realistically, I don't think that can, that can be achieved by heads of government or politicians, and I think most of the pressure has to come from civil society. Now, I say that as a head of government who's been in office for only 16 months or so, and during these 16 months, we have legislated to introduce civil union at par with marriage in our country and giving gay couples the right to apply for adoption rights, which for a 95% Roman Catholic country isn't that easy. And I know how much how difficult it was for some people in my country to accept all this. I was constantly faced with claims of opinion polls saying 80% of people don't agree with what you're doing. You're ramming it down their throats. You should not do that. We're not ready for this. When other European countries haven't gone so far. My argument was, on the other side, it's about leadership. And if we want to lead, we cannot follow opinion polls. We have to change opinion polls at the end of the day. So knowing how difficult this was within my own country and getting a coalition of interests together to make the necessary changes, I think it would be simplistic for me to say, yes, the Commonwealth should single out those countries which have not yet gone there. On the other hand, I think that there are human rights. It's not a, 
an a la carte menu. So there, are, there aren't some human rights you agree with and other human rights you disagree with. And the persecution and uh, any other, any sort of persecution of people based on sexual orientation is not on. And we have to condemn those attitudes in the clearest of manners. But I don't think it's about condemning people. It's about trying to give the right instruments for gradual changes in attitudes. And I repeat myself. So I come from a European country, which is very a very open society, no censorship, no um, ideas of closure whatsoever, yet it was difficult. So I wouldn't want to lecture other countries on what to do or not to do at this point, definitely. On the, on, the, on the point of the royal family, I must admit that maybe it will surprise you, ma'am, but as a politician, I'm at a loss on this because I, I, would, I wouldn't know what to say on what the, on what the future role of the royal family um, should be. It definitely, at least from what I see today, it is a point of unity. So... I am a staunch Republican, in the sense, as I said, I cannot conceive the idea of my country, as it was when we first gained independence in 1964, having Her Majesty as our head of state. Totally, totally uh, unconceivable. It could, could have been the, the Queen of Belgium or wherever. It's the idea of having a non-national as our head of state. We had this situation for 10 years, until 1974. But the Queen remains, and the royal family remains, a something in our heart. Even myself, who have, have never experienced that sort of setup, we feel that is something that unites rather than something that divides. And I get that feeling within the, the Commonwealth family, so I think it's a very positive influence on the Commonwealth and its members. Now, uh, turning on the Scottish independence thing, unfortunately I am Prime Minister, so I must uh, be very careful with my words. But I will say what I think. I think that it is up to the Scottish people to decide. And I think that it, it, it speaks a lot about the degree of development of this country that the right was given for a section of people, the, 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 the population of an essential part of the country, Scotland, to have their say. And that is not something that can be taken for granted. In other countries, in Europe, some parts of particular countries are still asking for such a right to have a say, and central government is not giving that right. So I think this is a huge hallmark of democracy. And what's even better is that central government is saying, we will respect whatever you say. Now it's up to the um, Scottish people to... I know you, you don't like this answer, but it's, it's honestly what I think is the positive side of all this. Thank you. There's a lady in here, please. Thank you. 
Do have the microphone. Uh, Mikaela Smith, I'm Chief Executive of Commonwealth Partners for Technology Management. Prime Minister, you more or less tried to take us towards three, at least, visions of the Commonwealth. Uh, might it be another possibility, uh, which probably encompasses all the others and any others that will come, which is connected with Commonwealth building intellectual equity, building mm -hmm. ideas, networks, and all the rest of it that you mentioned. And of course, that will bring us towards um, what uh, a number of leaders in Africa about a year ago were talking about, and continue to talk this year, about leveraging technology for transformation, leveraging technology vis-a-vis -vis ocean, the sea, vis-a-vis -vis oil and gas, vis-a-vis -vis its own. So Commonwealth and intellectual equity. Now, Malta is leading, was leading in that in the last 20 years or so. Yes. The only time when science ministers met in the Commonwealth was in Malta, due to Malta. So should we build on that? Thank you. Good. So the gentleman in the uh, back room. My name is Otto Chu. I'm a math teacher. Um, my question is about the membership. Um, I'm just wondering if you think that citizens of the respective countries should be consulted if they would still want to be part of the Commonwealth. That's it. Uh, right, we have a gentleman over here, please. Halfway down, three in. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jill Worthington. I'm a, an intern at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. But I should say this is my question and not the view of the FCL. <laughs> 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 you seem very critical of everything about the Commonwealth that I've heard. Um, and to be honest, these grand ideas that you have, you don't have enough time to do anything about them. Why don't you just do what you're saying other nations should have the choice to do and just leave the Commonwealth? Okay, great. So, Joe, I think, I think you have a very good question there. My argument was not about leaving the Commonwealth, it's, and I will tie with what our friend here was saying. It's about having a debate. It's useless um, moaning um, about something unless you do something about it. And you tell me, what are we doing about this? We're putting the whole issue on the agenda. Tomorrow there will be a number of blogs and papers who will say, look, someone is questioning whether we should just leave, wrap up, and say goodbye. My point is no. My point is that there, are, there is a need for a redefinition and to steer and change the course. For our side, as a small country and host of the next Commonwealth Summit, we will make a number of adjustments, a number of changes which will steer away the Commonwealth from being a diplomatic's, diplomat, diplomat's haven to one which discusses real issues which are relevant to real people. We will also ask heads of government to come for the meetings, and that unless they do come, no one else can come in their stead, to make it very clear that this is not a second-rate organization, but this is actually an organization where we want to debate the real issues. 
and we want another small change that we will put into place, I don't think any leader of any significant nation has four days in his calendar to attend one single meeting. And that's why we're saying that the whole thing should not take more than a day and a half or two, where we sit down, trash out the issues, and map the way forward. And one of the ideas that I think is very relevant is what was being mentioned on science and technology and innovation and information technology. I come from a country where we aim that in the next four years we will be the first Wi-Fi state in Europe and probably in the world, where everywhere you go you get free Wi-Fi access. That is something that I believe can be replicated in most of the Commonwealth countries. And it can be replicated rather easily in the smaller countries, obviously not in the larger countries. But we want to lead forward, lead the way. We want to put forward the blueprint. We want to show how it can be financed, how it can be done, how it can be generate its own income, how it can be freestanding, and what sort of benefit that has to the population. So these are, I believe, the ideas that you were mentioning and the, some of the ideas we will put forward on how the Commonwealth can come and become again something um, at, at, at the forefront. Let, let, me, let me be frank on the other side because maybe I sounded too negative on some parts of my, my speech and it wasn't my intention and I don't think I was negative really. But um, there is a queue of countries wanting to leave the Commonwealth, but there is a queue of countries wanting to join the Commonwealth. And uh, my point is, those who want to, to leave should just pack and leave. <laughs> if they should justify that, and we have, should have a, a frank debate on, on that, because if you get something that you you're in something that you don't really believe in, it's okay. I don't think there should be any, anything um, which is contradictory in, in that. But on the other hand, there are countries, especially African countries, who, given their neighborhood, are saying, look, we want to get into this organization. I was at a seminar this afternoon where I was told that one of the main reasons why most of the new applicants or those countries who are showing active interest in joining the Commonwealth, one of the main reasons why they want to do that is education. They know they would have access to more education programs that would give their people more opportunities. And so let's not have it about the past and recriminations about the past, but let's I believe, focus on the future and see who wants to be in, who wants to be out, and who wants to, to move on. I think I have answered all three questions. Take the gentleman in the white shirt. Uh, John Last Farmer. three questions, I think. John Farmer, no affiliation. Uh, Prime Minister, you spoke early, uh, early in your talk, if I'm paraphrasing you fairly, of the Commonwealth being a significant... Uh, egalitarian and voluntary organization of a significant 50, more than 50 nations comprising uh, some quarter of the world's population. In other words, uh, potentially a significant world force. And you've argued later in your talk and in uh, 
not least the, your, your latest answer, that the Commonwealth could be purposefully employed in addressing issues rather than arguing over niceties of a conference <laughs> communique. Uh, could greater use be made, do you think, of the Commonwealth Secretariat to uh, develop collective positions on uh, such issues so that the Commonwealth could speak as a world force alongside such bodies as the European Union or the uh, European Union on issues of world concern. Uh, the, the gentleman right in front then. Hello Prime Minister, uh, my name is Albert Kemp, I'm a student here at the LSE. Thank you very much for a lovely lecture. Um, I do realise that you're a head of state and the Prime Minister Morton that you have to be careful, but I wondered if you could please give us your opinion on Vladimir Putin and uh, <laughs> what you think the developing relationship between the West and Russia should be. Okay. I think we're all to answer the second part of the question, not the first. Uh, there's a gentleman with a green T-shirt uh, hi, my name is Elijah Scott, um, and I'm a student here at uh, London School of Economics. Um, how do you reconcile the distributional consequences and then the enforcement mechanisms of, of the Commonwealth, seeing as they're, um, it's essentially an amalgamation of very diverse states um, in different levels of development? Um, so how would you ensure um, that countries would generate consensus, seeing as they have very diverse um, interests um, in the Commonwealth? Okay, so um, I'll start with the question on the Commonwealth Secretariat. I think that the Secretariat and the SGs have, over time, proved themselves in doing the right things, most of the time. I think that what's really crucial is the choice of the next Secretary General. And I, for one, believe that the next Secretary General should be a politician someone um, who has clear ideas and the will to take political leadership to make the organization visible. So it should not be an administrator, but it should be someone who wants to put his or her face at, at the front and willing to take risks. So if you ask me to, to give you a, a, a potential resume of the next Secretary General, he or she should be a, uh, a leader who has the political will to take the risks and to make his or her voice heard. And I think that would make a, a real lot uh, of difference in whatever we're saying here because it would be a 24-7 job um, which could change the organization. And that ties in with, with the last question on how do you ensure this balance. I don't think it's about giving everyone its fair share. I actually think that that's, that has been one of the pitfalls of the Commonwealth, trying to slice the cake in exactly the same uh, fashion, uh, giving everyone its, uh, his or her uh, piece. It shouldn't work like that. This is, this is not about um, equal sharing. This is about ideals. This is about values. This is about responsibilities. And uh, that is why I think we should do less diplomacy and more um, factual um, 
programs and, 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 and have more ideas. On the point of Russia, well, um, let me put a, the record straight. The economy of my country doesn't depend on Russia. Um, uh, we have very little Russian investments, and uh, so what I might say might um, be seen as oversimplistic, because any sanctions on Russia would really not have a major effect on, on my country. I think countries such as my own are traditionally and historically very wary of head-on confrontations. But to be honest, after what happened a couple of days ago, I think that the West has to act. I don't know who put down the plane. And I don't have the intelligence to say that. But if what we read is true, and the rogues who are running astray in eastern Ukraine did that, then we have to tell Russia very clearly, even by means of sanctions now. And I'm very wary of mentioning the word sanctions, but I think it's now high time that we do that. Um, of saying, look, you need to put these guys in check because it's not on. I, for one, had, was traveling that route two weeks, two weeks ago, not from Schiphol to, to KL, but uh, from London to Beijing. And it is basically the same route. I had my family with me. And I dread to, to think that we, as a civilized world, would take this in our stride and just shut up because of the money or because of the gas. And that's why Europe needs to find other ways on how to diversify and to decrease its over-reliance on, on Russia or on any one single country. That's why we're saying that we need more renewable energy, we need um, a better energy plan for Europe, and that's why also as Malta we're saying that the Mediterranean, with its huge potential, is the best way in which to invest in order to decrease uh, reliance on Russia so that in future crises that might and will happen, decisions are taken in a better way and in a speedier manner. Uh, I think at that point, ladies and gentlemen, we should uh, call a halt to the proceedings. I would like to thank the Prime Minister for giving us uh, a couple of hours this evening in the midst of a very busy schedule. Uh, that was a provocative uh, presentation on the Commonwealth. A uh, range of questions from Scotland to Russia, the Commonwealth, and you've answered them all in a very considered and uh, appropriately diplomatic way, but not overly diplomatic. I think you've given us some real insights into your thinking about the European Union uh, and uh, various other major issues that uh, confront this country. Now, uh, before we depart, um, some years ago, Nelson Mandela was uh, speaking at the school, and uh, we 
was a small token of our appreciation. We gave him a little something. And since then, we've always given this little something to prime ministers and presidents who come to the school. Okay. So, uh, Equating me to Mandela makes me a bit nervous, but <laughs> <laughs>